Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by the Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch-off, the $500,000 Platinum Jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to 500 grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 Platinum Jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of drug use and abuse that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. The sun was just rising on a small Alabama town, but its inhabitants were already awake. Dressed in starched shirts and long dresses, they filed into a small white building. Once a gas station, the structure now featured a small steeple and handmade wooden sign that read, The Church of God with signs following. Loud percussive music spilled out of the church as its several dozen congregants prepared for Sunday morning service. The preacher and head of the church, Glenn Summerford, gave an impassioned sermon. His flock was spellbound by his words, cheering and dancing as he shouted God's word and rattled a tambourine. At the climax of his homily, Summerford reached behind the altar and held up a five-foot-long rattlesnake. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults, a ParCast original. Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, their leader, and their followers. Today, we're taking a deep dive into The Church of God with Signs Following, founded by Glenn Summerford, whose charismatic sermons and snake handling shows drew dozens of rural Alabamans to his church between 1981 and 1992. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. You can listen to previous episodes of Cults, as well as all of Parcast's other shows, on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. Glenn Summerford founded the Church of God with Signs Following in Scottsboro, Alabama in 1981. 
Previously, he was a boxer in underground fighting rings and served time in jail as a result of his violent temper. After almost killing a man in his small Alabama town, Summerford underwent a spiritual awakening. By 1981, he was the head of a new Scottsboro Christian church and started making changes to the services. He dazzled his audiences with emotional sermons and tested their faith by pushing them to handle serpents. He believed that demons took the form of poisonous snakes and that only by handling these snakes could one triumph over doubt and the enemies of God. At its height, over 100 people regularly attended service at Summerford's church. He was a pillar of the local community, and his followers defended his holiness without question, until allegations of abuse would cause them to reconsider their faith. This week, we'll focus on Glenn Summerford himself, his background, psyche, and how he went from a poor ex-convict to a respected community and spiritual leader. In part two, we'll broaden our focus from Summerford to the cult he founded, known as the Church of God with Signs Following. We'll learn about what drew followers to the church, their beliefs, and the criminal trial which unraveled the small community. Glenn Summerford was born in Jackson County, Alabama in 1945 to Cherokee parents. His parents separated before he was born, and Summerford was raised by his mother. Summerford's mother had been married once before. In the divorce, her first ex-husband took custody of their daughter. She was terrified Summerford's father would come to take him too. And therefore, mother and son moved around the southern United States constantly, always on the run from his father. As a result, money was tight, and the family often had hard time making ends meet. Several times during his childhood, Summerford's mother gave him to local families for short periods of time. She didn't explain to him that she was hiding from his father, and Summerford grew up terrified his mother would abandon him for good. The precarity of his relationships and his belief in the conditionality of parental love had permanent effects on his worldview. Vanessa's going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. Nomadic, unstable upbringings like Summerford's have been known to have lasting negative effects on children. Nancy Darling, a professor of psychology at Oberlin University, wrote, Adults who moved frequently as kids have fewer high-quality relationships and tend to score lower on well-being and life satisfaction. It wasn't just the constant movement that prevented Summerford from making connections. His fear of abandonment stayed with him long past his adolescence. Exactly. Dr. Claudia Black, a psychologist, wrote, Living with repeated abandonment experiences creates toxic shame. Shame arises from the painful message implied in abandonment, you are not important. You are not of value. Possibly as a result of this shame, Summerford developed into an introverted young boy. He was often bullied at school for his social awkwardness. His mother tried to help him make friends by taking him back to Alabama to visit his cousins, but he didn't get along with them either. Summerford fought his cousins and classmates often, but rarely won. Around his seventh birthday in 1952, Summerford's mother married for a third time 
His new stepfather was a former soldier in the special forces and took pity on the boy. Though he had five children of his own, Summerford's stepfather became closest with him and taught the boy how to fight. Learning to fight gave Summerford confidence, and he spent a lot of time with his stepfather. The two of them swam, fished, and worked out together. Summerford said of his stepdad, He was more than a daddy to me. He was my best friend, because I didn't have any friends, hardly. His stepfather was the first male role model in his life, for better or worse. Dr. Stanton Samenow, a clinical psychologist and author, wrote, Developmental psychologists emphasize that it is parents who constitute the most important role models. Thus, if a child has a negative role model, he is likely to identify with that individual and become like him. Neither Summerford's stepfather nor his mother considered school very important. Summerford adopted the aggressive personality of his stepfather and spent more time fighting than learning. He trained to fight relentlessly and was pulled out of school often to help his stepfather with odd jobs, like construction and mechanic work. In 1960, at the age of 15, Summerford moved to Chicago with his family and left school entirely. He began fighting in illicit boxing matches in warehouses and alleyways, often with limited rules against men who were far older than him. He wanted to become a professional fighter, but lacked the money and coaching support. He searched for a fresh start. That chance came in 1960, when his aunt told him that his biological father lived in Illinois and wanted to meet him. At 15 years old, Summerford met his biological father for the first time. His mother was still irrationally afraid his father would take him away from her, but didn't share her trepidations with her son. Summerford was surprised to find his father wasn't at all the person he expected or his mother had described. He was a happy and generous man who was overjoyed to finally meet his son. At first, his welcoming attitude threw Summerford off. He didn't believe this man could be the father his mother had warned him about. In the back of his mind, he wondered if he was being tricked. But as he talked with his father a little more, Summerford saw a man who genuinely wanted a relationship with his son. At the end of his visit, Summerford's father asked him to move in. Unfortunately, Summerford wasn't ready for that kind of step. He yearned to be on his own. He was making enough money to scrape by as a fighter and wanted to make a name for himself as a professional on his own terms. Though disappointed, his father pledged his support and offered him some money for bus fare. Summerford wouldn't take it. He left Chicago to meet up with some boxing contacts in Florida and didn't see his father again for many years. In Florida, 15-year-old Summerford continued to build his boxing reputation. He boxed as often as he could while working part-time jobs and slowly made inroads in the local scene, trying to earn his chance at bigger fights with bigger prizes. After living in Florida for a year, Summerford took a job stacking produce in a warehouse in 1961. Through one of his co-workers at the warehouse, he arranged an underground boxing match. Though he won the bout, he broke a rib during the fight. While recovering from his injury, Summerford grew frustrated with his limited opportunities. Because he was only 16, he had to forge his parents' names when entering fights and felt professionals didn't take him seriously. By 1962, he decided to return to Illinois. 
Summerford moved in with his stepfather and mother back in Chicago. With their help, he trained harder than ever to become a professional fighter and managed to briefly hire a professional coach. Over the next year, he fought over 30 opponents. In 1963, 18-year-old Summerford entered a new boxing tournament run by some local gangsters, winner take all. He won three fights in a row and claimed the jackpot that night, but didn't get a chance to enjoy his spoils. For reasons that were never fully clear, a gang fight broke out after he won the tournament. It began as a tense standoff, but soon erupted into an all-out brawl after someone fired a gun. Summerford attempted to flee, but he was quickly surrounded in the chaos. The fighters he had bested that night seized the opportunity. They jumped on him and gave him a heavy beating. His prize money was stolen, but worse than that, his skull was brutally cracked when he was thrown to the pavement by one of the other competitors. Summerford woke up the next morning in the hospital. The doctor told him his head trauma was serious and he could never fight again. He warned that another knockout may place him in a coma. Summerford only shared the news with his stepfather, who urged him to give up fighting and settle down. But Summerford felt unable to do anything but fight. After years in the ring, he couldn't imagine any other kind of life. Though martial arts and boxing are commonly portrayed in popular culture as hobbies that stoke anger and aggression, psychological studies show they can actually have the opposite effect. According to a study by researchers at Carleton University in Canada, individuals who received martial arts training scored lower on hostility and aggression and or higher scores on self-esteem when compared to students of other sports. Over time, with longer training, these scores increased. Summerford lived an insecure life. He struggled to hold down a job, and fighting was one of the only ways he could earn large sums of money and feel a sense of accomplishment. Therefore, Summerford probably continued to fight, not because of a violent temper, but instead to preserve his lifestyle and sense of pride. Over the next year, he and a cousin organized small fights in rural towns in Texas, Georgia, Alabama, and Florida. Luckily, he wasn't knocked out during that time and didn't face any additional health problems. Then, in 1964, at the age of 19, Summerford met a young woman named Doris Holcomb. She was beautiful and kind. They quickly hit it off and dated for several months, eventually falling in love. Summerford finally decided to take his stepfather's advice to settle down. He married Doris that same year. They lived in Scottsboro, Alabama for a few months before moving back down to Florida at the end of 1964. Summerford took a job on a dairy farm. For a while, life was good, but money was as scant as ever, and Summerford hadn't entirely kicked his yearning to fight. At first, he only sparred with friends as a workout. But soon, he was back to setting up fights in empty warehouses with local amateurs. In one such fight, Summerford was hit so hard in the chest, his lung was punctured. He made his way home that night, delirious from the pain. He told his wife he had been kicked by a cow and immediately passed out on the couch. He laid there for two weeks, gasping for every breath. By this time, Summerford couldn't eat or drink on his own. 
He later said of his grave injuries, it was like floating in water on the inside. His lungs were both slowly filling with blood. When he finally went to the hospital, the doctor told Summerford he only had three days left to live. Then he sent him home to be with family as he died. Coming up, Glenn desperately fights for his life and seeks redemption. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Now, back to the story. In 1965, 20-year-old Glenn Summerford punctured his lung during an amateur boxing match. His injury was so severe, the doctor gave him only three days left to live. His wife, Doris, took him home to spend his dying days with family. Confined to the couch and struggling to eat and sleep, he prepared himself for death. Summerford's mother, cousins, and aunts all stayed with him, doing their best to make him comfortable, but the days passed by agonizingly slow. Summerford looked back on his life and didn't like what he saw. He was bitter and felt cheated. He couldn't bear the thought of leaving Doris behind. It made him think of his own father walking out on his family. When the morning of the third day came, the day that was said to be his last, Summerford felt renewed determination. He vowed to fight until the final bell. And at the end of the third day, Summerford still clung to life. After a week, he had further improved. Doris tried not to get her hopes up, but secretly prayed every night for his recovery. Summerford's mother and stepfather brought by food and helped with chores. Against all odds, he continued to recover over the next couple of weeks. He returned to the hospital and had a second x-ray. The doctor couldn't believe his eyes. Summerford's lungs had completely healed. The doctors were at a complete loss to explain how it had happened, but they told Summerford to keep doing whatever he was doing. In some cases, pulmonary edema can be relieved by ingesting large amounts of diuretics to reduce pressure on the lungs. It's possible Summerford's condition appeared worse on the initial x-ray than it actually was, and he was saved by taking heavy fluids. But there was never a definitive explanation for his recovery. After his punctured lung was miraculously cured, Summerford committed himself to straightening out his life. He promised himself that one day he would pay back Doris and his family for saving him. After living with Doris in Florida for a year, it seemed like 20-year-old Summerford's life was back on track. He stayed loyal to Doris and always made sure they both had enough to eat. He was making decent money from his part-time jobs, and later in 1965, Doris became pregnant with their first child. But even with the threat of death, he couldn't let go of boxing, whether from pride or stubbornness. One night, he drove up to Alabama with his cousin to enter a match. According to Summerford, a local gambler told him to meet him in a large house in Scottsboro, Alabama. 
When they arrived at the house, there was no one there. Summerford and his cousin walked in and looked around, but couldn't find any gamblers or other fighters. Confused, they got back in their car and drove away. When the pair stopped at a gas station on the way home, they were confronted by the police. A neighbor had seen them entering the empty house. Despite Summerford's insistence on his innocence, he was arrested for burglary. At the trial, the jury didn't believe his story about the boxing tournament. The prosecutor pointed out that Summerford had been arrested as a teenager for assault. These charges were actually connected to his illegal boxing bouts, but it didn't matter to the DA. Though he had never been jailed, these charges, combined with his illegal gambling on boxing matches, made him look like a career criminal to the conservative Alabama court. Summerford was convicted in late 1966 and given 18 months in prison. The sentence left him devastated. He worried about his pregnant wife and again pondered where his life was headed. Once he got inside, his biggest problems were only made worse. During his first six weeks inside, he fought several times per week for cigarettes and money. When possible, he sent the money on to Doris, trying to do what he could for his unborn daughter. After a couple of months, Doris learned how he was making his money in jail and informed the warden of Summerford's medical history. The warden barred him from fighting to prevent an injury. With little choice, Summerford agreed to stop fighting. For his good behavior, he was transferred to a minimum security prison in Fort Payne, Alabama, after a couple of months. There, his wife could visit him, and he would eventually meet his six-month-old daughter for the first time. Summerford came up for parole in 1968 at the age of 23 and was allowed out of jail after serving 12 months. He again did his best to get his life back to normal. He took jobs as a construction worker, mechanic, and warehouse worker, doing whatever it took to make ends meet. And whenever money got too tight, he fought. Even though it was dangerous, if boxing was what put food on the table, that's what he would do. He worked with his cousin to arrange bouts in cities all around Alabama. He remained happy with Doris, and during this time, they welcomed two sons and another daughter. Summerford dreamed of getting together enough money to buy a boat and start a commercial fishing business. With that goal in mind, he started fighting more often in 1972, when he was 27. During one such fight in Gurley, Alabama, Summerford went overboard. He antagonized one of his competitors, a local with a lot of friends in town. Summerford didn't like the man's attitude, thinking he was a bully, and mocked him during the fight. He called the man a coward and insulted his family. During the bout, the enraged man let his emotions get the better of him. And in his fervor, he left himself open for a knockout blow. After Summerford won the match, the man vowed revenge. A few weeks later, in the summer of 1972, Summerford was working in his garage late at night. He started to smell smoke and ran outside to see what was wrong. A fire was spreading fast up the back wall of his home. He scrambled inside and woke Doris. While she grabbed the children, he threw their TV through the living room window. Doris came back with the children, and Summerford tossed them one by one through the window onto the safety of the grass outside. The smoke was so thick he couldn't see. 
After Doris handed him the last child, he tried to grab her but couldn't find her. He panicked and charged through the smoke. Doris was on fire, rolling back and forth in the middle of the floor. Summerford ripped the clothing off of her and patted her out, burning his hands and arms. He helped her up and the pair made it back to the window. They jumped out together and landed hard on the ground. For a moment, Summerford wondered if he would ever get up again. Thoughts of his children pulled him to his feet. He helped Doris away from the fire and gave her his shirt and jacket. Neighbors were already flocking to the scene. Still surging with adrenaline and fear, he gathered his family together. That's when he realized he hadn't grabbed his 18-month-old daughter. By now, the house was completely ablaze. Summerford screamed and sprinted for the house, but was intercepted by one of his neighbors. The man held him back as he watched the roof cave in. Summerford's grief was total. In addition to the house fire, his oldest sister had died in a car accident the week before. His grandmother had also passed away three days prior. Combined losses like these can lead to depression, anxiety, and substance abuse. Grief of extreme intensity can be difficult to move past. It's not uncommon for bereavement to last months or years. Dr. Deborah Koshaba, a psychologist, wrote, For some people, acute grief can gain a foothold and become a chronic, debilitating mental health condition that worsens over time rather than gets better. This is called complicated grief. For Summerford, his complicated grief made him feel powerless. Everything was lost to the fire, aside from some cash Summerford's stepfather had been keeping for him. He spent the money on a funeral for his daughter. Local police were unable to determine what had started the fire. They searched the scene and interviewed witnesses, but no one had seen anyone near the house before the blaze began. During the next few days, Summerford swore to find the men who had killed his daughter. He suspected it was a friend of the bully who he had beaten in the boxing match, but wasn't sure which friend. His stepfather recognized the dangerous look in his eyes and pulled him aside to talk, telling him, I've taught you how to be a man, and I've taught you how to whoop any man alive just about. But always remember, you can't give life back if you take it. Summerford continued to fume on his own while mulling over what his stepfather had told him. Then, a week later, he got the news. His stepfather, who was in his late 60s, had passed away of a heart attack. <laughs> in deference to his stepfather, Summerford abandoned his quest for revenge. Despite his anger and grief, he focused on his other three children and stopped searching for the men who had set his house on fire. Even so, his life had fallen apart. His relationship with Doris changed after the death of their daughter. After losing a child, it can be difficult for families to stay together. According to a study conducted by The Compassionate Friends, a nonprofit organization for grief counseling, about 16% of marriages end soon after a child's death. This is especially true in cases of complicated grief. Doris and Summerford experienced successive tragedies, and they simply may not have received the support they needed, as so many other family members were now deceased or grieving themselves. 
Therapist Susan Gadois wrote, those who have the ability to process difficult emotions or circumstances are more likely to get on the other side of them. However, the choice to numb out or self-destruct is always there, whether you have the skills or not. Summerford and Doris stayed together for a couple of years after the fire, though they often didn't speak to one another. They even stopped fighting, becoming more like roommates than husband and wife. In 1974, when Summerford was 29, he separated from Doris. He started boxing again and lived more recklessly than ever before. He said at that time, he had a death wish. Up next, Glenn Summerford's grief leads him to a spiritual awakening. Now, back to the story. In the summer of 1972, 27-year-old Glenn Summerford tragically lost his 18-month-old daughter in a house fire. The grief overwhelmed him and his wife, Doris, and they eventually separated. Summerford spiraled into a reckless depression. His old dreams of starting a fishing business had dried up. He felt adrift in life, like he had lost control of everything that mattered to him. Then, in late 1975, he met 20-year-old Darlene Collins at a bar. She was a beautiful, vivacious woman who loved to dance. They had shared experiences of loss. Darlene's two-year-old son was put into foster care after she got involved in sex work and drugs. She bonded with Summerford over their lost and estranged children. At first, Summerford went out with Darlene as a distraction. He liked to dance with her, and they had a good time together. But after only a few months, their relationship deepened. Surprising himself, Summerford was falling in love again. Even at the lowest point of his life, Darlene managed to make him feel alive. He quit chasing other women and fighting and devoted all his time to the budding romance. After several months, he officially divorced Doris and married Darlene. Once again, Summerford's life was temporarily stable. He got a job as a roofer and worked on the side as a mechanic in the town of New Hope, Alabama. But it wasn't long before his fighting instincts got the better of him. After a few months in New Hope, Summerford got a call from a friend who had been attacked by two men. The men were in love with Summerford's friend's wife and thought they could win her over by chasing her husband out of town. Summerford went over to his friend's house to protect him. When the men called to threaten his friend, Summerford warned them he would shoot if they came to the house. They came anyway. While his friend's wife called the police, Summerford approached the men with a gun in his hand. One of the men turned and ran at the sight of the gun. The other one started to unwind a long chain he brought along as a weapon. He demanded Summerford drop the gun and fight fair. When he refused, the man reached for the chain again, and Summerford had to react. He shot the man in the kneecap. The police arrived soon after and took the wounded man to the hospital. Surprisingly, they didn't arrest Summerford. After a few weeks, the man recovered from the gunshot and declined to press charges. Word of Summerford's deeds spread around town, and he became a local legend. Some townsfolk started hiring Summerford as a strong man. They paid him to fight and threaten people they had issues with. 
Summerford took to this newfound fame eagerly and fought as many people as he could. In his mind, his risk of re-injury as a result of fighting amateurs was slight. It had been 12 years since the doctor told him to stop fighting, and he had remained in good health the whole time. Besides, doctors also told him he wouldn't survive his punctured lung, so he didn't put much stock in their advice. His reputation as a strongman started to go to his head. On several occasions, he even fought local police officers barehanded. However, Summerford accrued several assault charges from his work and served a brief stint in jail. It was at this point that Summerford again felt he needed to turn his life around. Darlene, now 22, was pregnant with their first child. The pair agreed they should settle down for the child's sake and start living right. To help themselves get back onto the straight and narrow, Summerford and Darlene attended local churches. But they never went for more than a few weeks before falling back into their old habits. By 1978, 33-year-old Summerford felt irredeemable. He struggled to support his family and spent most of his time fighting and making enemies. He felt like he was incapable of change and wondered if his life up until then had been pointless. With nowhere left to turn, he prayed to God for help. Unexpectedly, his prayers were answered almost immediately. A man named Jimmy Brown approached him, asking for reconciliation. Months before, Summerford had beaten Jimmy up at the request of Jimmy's ex-wife, who had been physically abused by him for years. Jimmy told Summerford he had changed his life after their fight and wanted to pray with him. The two prayed together many times, and it felt like a new leaf for Summerford. He asked God to help him to quit fighting and gambling. A few weeks later, he moved his roofing business to the nearby community of Fackler, Alabama, in search of more work and switched to praying on his own. But once in Fackler, away from Jimmy Brown, Summerford became frustrated with his spiritual progress. Due to his limited education, he had trouble reading the Bible. Every night, he begged God to teach him the Word. Then one day, after praying for hours, 33-year-old Summerford heard God's voice at last. He claimed God told him to fast for 30 days without food or water. Summerford then locked himself in the bedroom for the 30 days and attested that he didn't take a single meal or drink. According to medical experts, a human can go up to three weeks without food, but only three or four days without water making Summerford's claims incredible, to say the least. But when he emerged from the fast, Summerford was a changed man. He called for Darlene. She said he appeared physically weak, but at the same time in a lucid state of mind and in command of a strange new confidence. For the next few days, he shared the wisdom God passed on to him with Darlene. Still, despite his continued pleas to the Lord, he found he could not understand the Bible as well as he wanted to. Summerford claimed he then spoke with God again and was encouraged to fast without food for 30 more days, though this time he was allowed to drink water. During his second fast, God taught Summerford his word, cover to cover. When it was done, Summerford felt he was truly ready to begin living right. 
The depths of his newfound religious devotion were on full display when he and Darlene joined a small Bible study group held at a friend's house. The group's leader was a local faith healer and pastor named Brother York. York was known for his fiery sermons and healing miracles. Most of the ailments he healed were related to chronic pain caused by arthritis or similar conditions. But he was also known to inspire those he touched with the Holy Spirit. He converted many skeptics in Alabama after they attended one of his services and felt his divine touch. On the night Summerford attended, York delivered a passionate sermon filled with yelling and dancing. The other members of the group stood up and began to scream exaltedly. York laid his hands on them and they felt the power of the Holy Ghost. A couple jerked their bodies around and went into a trance-like state. Summerford watched, but felt nothing. He prayed to God, begging to feel the Holy Ghost that possessed York. According to Summerford, God said to him, quote, when Brother York touches you, my spirit go and bind him, and you cast him out. Though Summerford wasn't sure what that meant, he approached Brother York. When York laid his hands on him, Summerford immediately collapsed to the ground and began to convulse. He screamed curses and babbled incoherently. Summerford, acting on instinct, grabbed Brother York by the hand and cast the devil out of him. While the group cheered him on, he held York's hand and exorcised the devil he believed had been transferred from himself to York. Faith healing like this takes many forms, but they all involve essentially the same psychological factors. As Darren Brown, a mentalist and magician, pointed out, faith healing and magic tricks have a lot in common. Much like a magic show, Brother York took center stage at the Bible meeting, leading the rest of the members along with him and telling them of the miracles he sought to achieve. Priming the audience with incredible expectations is an essential part of the process. According to Brown, the mind can persuade itself that the impossible is happening when prodded in the right direction by a convincing showman. This doesn't mean that Brother York was deliberately misleading his audience. Many faith healers genuinely believe they have a unique power to channel God. But oftentimes, the real magic is happening in the minds of the audience. In Summerford's case, this explains why cleansing himself of the devil occurred in exactly the manner he so desperately desired and why it caused him no pain at all. After this experience, Summerford felt cleansed. It was like a tremendous weight was suddenly lifted from his chest. He felt lighter, stronger, and more convicted than he had ever been. It was a feeling of destiny being realized. After struggling directionless for 33 years, Summerford finally knew what God had created him to do. He embraced the Holy Ghost and began his new life. Summerford stopped fighting for good and no longer went out to bars late at night. He was a regular at Bible studies and a small non-denominational Christian church called the Mink Creek Holiness Church. The church hosted services almost every day and held Sunday school for children. Its beliefs were in line with many conservative evangelical Christian sects. Summerford adhered to a strict schedule of praying. 
He hiked around a trail near his house every day, either at sunrise or sunset. He also continued to fast on and off. The fasts didn't reach the extremes he had gone to before, but he still needed days to rest afterward. Some Christians believe the suffering caused by self-flagellation and fasting brings them closer to God. According to Andrew Sohn of the Opus Dei sect of Catholicism, people reconnect with their bodies and take control via moderate fasting and some corporal mortification, finding it a very healthy practice which can overcome drug use, sexual addictions, and other body-hating approaches. One morning in 1979, several months after Summerford had his spiritual awakening, and a few days after he completed a smaller fast, he woke up earlier than usual. Outside his house, he spotted a venomous copperhead snake. Suddenly, a Bible verse, Mark chapter 16, verses 17 to 18, came to his mind. Quote, And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents. And if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. Summerford had never been to a snake-handling church, but had heard of them. These sects originated with George Hensley, a preacher and biblical literalist. He became fixated on the verse from the Gospel of Mark and began passing around serpents at his services to test the faith of his followers. Today, these sects are disconnected from one another, similar in overall beliefs, but scattered throughout southern Appalachia. On that morning in 1979, Summerford, without a direct connection to any of these churches, thought again of the verses from Mark and dropped to his knees to pray next to the snake. The copperhead remained motionless beside him. Summerford heard God's voice offering him protection. He grabbed the snake and lifted it above his head. It stayed still and silent in his hands. Just then, Darlene came around the house carrying a garden hoe. Terrified, she told Summerford to put down the snake. He did. Just as she went to decapitate it with the hoe, she too heard the voice of God. Darlene laid the hoe down and knelt next to Summerford. They prayed for a long time before she also took up the serpent and lifted it in the air, praising the Lord. Summerford wasn't sure what to make of his first snake handling experience. He kept it to himself and continued with his holy schedule. But as the weeks wore on, he continued to come across serpents near his home and took them up more frequently, sometimes dancing and loudly praising God. Though some might expect snake handling to provide an adrenaline rush, most adherents of the practice describe it as a moment of peace. For instance, Cody Coots, a modern-day follower of a snake handling church, said in an interview with The Ringer, It's completely peaceful. I'm just blissed out. I never feel so close to God. Snake handling also appealed to Summerford because it provided material confirmation of his faith. Surviving encounters with poisonous snakes made Summerford confident that God was on his side. No one could doubt his conviction or his conversion with that kind of proof. Soon, Summerford and Darlene were handling snakes every night. 
they caught a collection of copperheads and diamondback rattlesnakes in the woods around their home. They kept the snakes in containers of all kinds in their garage, including small terrariums and plastic bins. The Summerfords handled snakes late each night after their three children, now between the ages of 10 and 13, were asleep. Sometimes the couple would be particularly struck by the Holy Spirit. They would chant together and speak in tongues. They entered a trance-like state that Summerford described as feeling like heaven was all around him. Meanwhile, they continued to attend the Mink Creek Holiness Church in 1979. Summerford started volunteering during the services, and less than a year after joining the church, he was promoted to assistant pastor to Brother Carl Hazewell, the church's leader. Hazewell strongly believed in Summerford's connection to God. He personally witnessed Summerford inspire multiple people with the power of the Holy Ghost, starting right after the night he exorcised the devil from Brother York. Summerford even began healing people with his miracle touch. One of his fellow church members, Dorothy Dial, recalled him healing her son, JJ's, shattered jaw after the boy had gotten in a car wreck. According to Dorothy, quote, Brother Glenn laid hands on him. About 15 minutes later, I turned around and JJ was crying. He said, Mama, my jaws feel like they're shifting. Dorothy nearly wept with joy when JJ asked her for a mint. She watched in awe as he chewed it in front of her, the first solid food he'd eaten in months. Still, Dorothy didn't believe he was cured. Summerford encouraged her to bring the boy to the doctor right away. He claimed he heard God's voice telling him J.J. was healed, and the experience reminded Summerford of how he'd felt when his lung was punctured. In his mind, God was healing J.J. the same way he had healed Summerford all those years ago. Dorothy brought J.J. back to the doctor, prepared for bad news. The hospital had told her a month prior that the boy needed a surgery to fix his jaw. Unfortunately, Dorothy didn't have the $500 down payment that was required for the operation. Reluctantly, the doctor gave JJ another x-ray. The results were baffling. The doctor told Dorothy it appeared JJ no longer needed the surgery. His jaw was healing itself. Dr. Nigel Barber, a biopsychologist and professor, pointed out that despite a lack of scientific understanding, faith healing can work similarly to the placebo effect. He wrote, by means unknown, faith healing is evidently capable of boosting immune function. This would explain why minor lesions clear up faster than would otherwise be the case. Summerford dutifully embraced his healing role in the church and Pastor Hazewell groomed him to take over his duties. Unfortunately, his tutelage was cut short when Hazewell died of a heart attack in 1980. Summerford's first official sermon was during his funeral. He took over the Mink Creek Holiness Church and made some adjustments to the way things were done. One of the first changes he made was to allow black church members to attend integrated services, before Summerford took over, segregated sermons were held for the black churchgoers in a separate part of the church. As Summerford later recounted, he faced a lot of criticism for the change. Older ministers who resented his quick advancement to pastor in the first place 
were especially opposed. Some members boycotted the new services and threatened to start their own congregation. But Summerford refused to back down. He felt strongly that God's word should not be segregated and that in God's eyes, everybody was equal. With the support of Brother York and other loyal members of his flock, Summerford held fast and refused to rescind his new policies. A few months later, racist protesters burned down the church. No one was hurt, but once again, fire had destroyed something precious to Summerford. Summerford saw this as a new beginning. He had a spiritual vision of a new, enormous church, big enough to house all the residents of Scottsboro. The congregation rented some land near the ruins of the burnt church in an area of Scottsboro known as Woods Hollow. Construction began on the large church in the fall of 1980. In the meantime, they held services in a small building next to the construction site. Summerford's first service in the temporary building was a momentous one. He gave a passionate sermon about the Gospel of Mark and the power of redemption. He read aloud the final chapter of Mark, Mark 16. His emotion was clear, and the congregants, with the tragedy of the burned church fresh in their minds, were mesmerized by his preaching. They yelled and danced as he read, feeling the call of the Holy Spirit and Summerford's powerful words. Only when the flock were all standing and yelling did Summerford read verses 17 and 18. Then he reached behind the altar and held up a cottonmouth snake. His followers exploded with praise and exaltation. He read the scripture, quote, and they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. Summerford passed the snake to Darlene. She passed it on to another brave follower. Down the line it went. And in those moments, the church of God with signs following was born. For more information on this story, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Serpent and the Spirit by Thomas Burton and Salvation on Sand Mountain by Dennis Covington extremely helpful to our research. Thanks again for tuning into Cults. We'll be back next Tuesday with another episode on The Church of God with Signs Following. We'll take a closer look at how Summerford organized and gained control over his new church we'll see how his fascination with snake handling and increasing radical Christianity led to a fervent follower base of over 100 people. We'll also examine the dramatic events that led up to Summerford's attempted murder of his wife, Darlene. You can find more episodes of Cults, as well as all of Parcast's other shows, on Spotify or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Cults was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Andy Waits, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. Cults is written by Terrell Wells and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson.